0: On March 24th, 1980, Oscar Romero was assassinated while, as, while officiating at a service in a hospital chapel in El Salvador, where he served as archbishop. Bishop Romero was an unlikely martyr. In his early career, he was known, if anything, as a traditionalist an institutionalist who loved the church. He was in Rome from 1941 to 1943, where he studied to receive his document, his doctorate. And when he was appointed Archbishop of San Salvador, there was grumbling among the more progressive priests in the country, worried that the new Bishop Romero would accommodate the increasingly violent right-wing government. El Salvador. The accommodation between the Catholic Church in Rome and the fascist government of Italy in the 1940s was not far from anyone's mind. In 1977, less than a month after Romero became archbishop, a close friend of his was assassinated. For the next three years, Oscar Romero turned the full weight of his institutional position, the full weight of the Archbishop of San Salvador into providing a voice of truth in a country rapidly descending into civil war. In his weekly radio broadcasts, he listed the names of those who had been killed as well as speaking out against the human rights abuses by the junta in power. In a speech in Belgium, less than a month before his death, Romero said this, that part of the church has been attacked and persecuted that puts itself on the side of the people and went to the people's defense. Here again, we find the same key to understanding the persecution of the church, the poor. Putting the church on the side of the poor, providing sanctuary, was a revolutionary act. And Oscar Romero's assassination shocked the world, in part because it violated the sense of sanctuary that we often place on places of worship like this one. Our theme this month is sanctuary. And I want to pick up this week right where we left off last Sunday. Last Sunday we talked about the sanctuary that is Unitarian Universalism. We spoke about how this is a faith and the Unitarian Church of Lincoln is a place that has welcomed us in, some of us on the worst days of our lives and provided a place of safety and deepening from which we grow. This is the sanctuary that Kenny Wiley writes when he says that in the days after my mom's death, I decided to go to church. That is sanctuary. We are here because this is a transformative, life-giving tradition. This is not what this sermon is about, but I came to Unitarian Universalism and it has been a sanctuary for me when my life has gotten real hard. And I bet most of us have stories like that, ranging from needing a place that did not tell us what we needed to believe about God, or needing a community to support us in the midst of a health crisis, or needing a place to say that whoever you love, you love them and you are beloved. And it doesn't need to be more complicated than that. And here's what was on my mind all week, last week as I wrote and preached that sermon about how we have all found sanctuary in this place. That is necessary, absolutely. And it is not sufficient. It's important that we're all here because Unitarian Universalism has been and continues to be a place of refuge for us, but it is not enough to be a sanctuary for the people that are already here. A place of comfort and safety on Sunday mornings. We have to be that. We have to be that. But we must have a broader conception of sanctuary beyond the walls of this building. Richard Rohr is a contemporary Christian theologian, and there's been a there's a passage of his work on Franciscan mysticism that I've been turning over in my head this week and. I suppose it says more about where my head was this week that Franciscan mysticism and sanctuary got <laughs> conflated, but we're gonna see how this works. So Roar writes this, how do we love God? Most of us seem to have concluded that we love God by attending church services. For some reason, we thought that made God happy. I'm not sure why. That idea probably has more to do with clergy job security. <laughs> Jesus never talked about attending services. Although church can be a good container to start with, and we tend to become like the folks that we hang out with. The prophets actually often portray God's disdain for self serving church services. The sanctuary, the sanctuary, the sanctuary is all we care about, Jeremiah shouts. I hold my nose at your incense. What I want you to do is love the widow and the orphan, say both Isaiah and Amos, as do Jeremiah, Hosea, Joel, Micah, and Zachariah in different ways. The prophetic message is absolutely clear, yet we went right back to loving church services instead of reality. I believe, this is Roar, that our inability to recognize and love God in what is right in front of us made us separate religion from our actual selves. There is Sunday morning, and then there is real life. Now there's some different theology there. Rory is distinctly not a Unitarian. Um, indeed, this section comes from a larger conversation he's having about incarnation, so he's about as not Unitarian as you can get right in this moment. But the God he references here, I think we would call that which is of ultimate concern. The first principle, if you will. For me, what that means is this. When I don't see God in front of me, when I don't love what's in front of me, I lose track of people's inherent worth and dignity. When Eilish wakes up in the middle of the night and I really just need to get a sermon draft done and go to sleep, please. And I focus on that uh, rather than the wonder at the interconnectedness of generations, then I am missing loving what is in front of me. This is real easy to do, right? A colleague of mine shared a story on social media this week. <laughs> I have her permission to share it. So um, about being brought to tears by a song on the radio as she was driving down the highway. The, the song's chorus was, in the end, only kindness. This is near to what we preach. These songs are near and dear to us. So she, she finds herself driving down the freeway weeping at the beauty of the message of the song. And then a merging car cuts her off. (laughs) And she screams out, idiot. (laughs) And then goes back to weeping about in the end, only (laughs) kindness. I think the hardest part of being human, she wrote, is the inability to live one's deepest held values for more than an hour. (laughs) Much less a lifetime. So we're called to bring our religion out of the sanctuary on Sunday morning to live our deepest values both here on Sunday morning but also when we're driving down the freeway. We're called to make this place a sanctuary for more than just ourselves because God is not contained within these walls and these people in this room it is out there in everyone we meet. This is the message of the church in Transylvania. We bring our lanterns here every week, but the lanterns don't stay here. They have a lot of uses outside the church. They can remind us of this place when we're away from it. They can be a beacon on a stormy night. (coughs) Roar continues. The only way I know how to teach anyone to love God, how I myself can love God, is to love what God loves, which is to say everything and everyone, including you and including me. Then we love with an infinite love that can always flow right through us. We then are able to love things in their thisness, for themselves and in themselves, not what they do for us. That takes both work and surrender and the primary work is detaching from ourselves from our conditioning, our preferences, our prejudices, our knee jerk neurological reactions. We are then able to love things in their thisness. This is a necessity as we start to approach this idea of sanctuary. Loving what, who is in front of us, not in the abstract. Or in who we hope they are or hope they might become. But in the lived authentic thisness of their lives. And loving people in their thisness, their whole complexity and story that is the same and different than ours, it asks something of us. We cannot be in any authentic relationship if we are unwilling to change who we are. To be open to the questions and evolutions that come through relationship. The deeper the relationship goes, the more it asks of us. Think about that litany of groups that we went through last week. All the distinct cultures and groups of people who have joined Unitarian Universalism over the last generation. (laughs) Humanists, LGBTQ folks, Earth-centered practitioners, every time we authentically become a sanctuary. Each time we become a home for someone new, our community changes. And that's a really good thing. These changes can be uncomfortable, but they're, they're necessary because we are called to love what's in front of us. The last piece I'll quote from Roar is this. As our freedom from our ego expands, as we get ourselves out of the way, there is a slow but real expansion of consciousness so that we are not the central reference point anymore. We are able to love in greater and greater circles until we can finally do what Jesus did, love and forgive even our enemies. Now, the possibility of love is always right in front of us and always concrete. It is no longer a theory, a heroic ideal, or a more distant goal. The question at the heart of the idea of sanctuary is this. Who is looking for sanctuary now? And how do we open the door for them? Answering this question requires us to do some work, to decenter ourselves. Because if we place the folks in need of sanctuary as the central reference point, what does that mean for us? What would it mean for Unitarian Universalism to not be nominated for best religion in a leading role, <laughs> but instead compete for best supporting place of sanctuary? This is hard because in the past, we each have been the folks in need of sanctuary. The central role in the story, the people finding Unitarian Universalism and making it their own, whether we were born into it or walked in for the first time last week. But our work now, especially for folks who live as privileged people in this world, folks like me, is to try and move ourselves away from being the central reference point of Unitarian Universalism, to make room for other stories, other folks searching for and finding sanctuary in our congregations. This idea of decentering sounds new, but it has history. So take out your hymnals You don't need to open (laughs) them, just look at the front. And look at the logo on the front. We've talked about the symbolism of the flaming chalice before. But as a quick refresher, the Unitarian Service Committee commissioned the flaming chalice as a relatively abstract design that would look a little bit like a cross but wouldn't be a cross. (coughs) During the Second World War. In order to forge official looking documents to get refugees out of Europe. The flaming chalice of Unitarian Universalism is a very literal symbol of sanctuary in a time of need. But that's not actually what we're talking about with this. Because the logo, the one on our, our uh, hymnals, is not just the flaming chalice. The chalice was the symbol of Unitarianism. And when the Unitarians and Universalists merged in 1961, they also merged their logos. The primary symbol of Universalism at the time of the merger was this. Universalism was often more explicit about their identity as a Christian denomination than the Unitarians, so they began with a cross. But here's the important part. The Universalists took the cross, the symbol that they identified with, and offset it within the circle. Rather than the cross being at the center, the cross is decentered in order to make room for other stories other ways of seeing the world. The universalists were both clear about their own identity, but were willing to give space to welcome others. Now, look back at the hymnal. The two circles around the chalice represent Unitarians and universalists. But look closely at the chalice, it's offset it's not in the middle it's twenty eighteen there's a midterm election in three weeks the intergovernmental panel on climate change just released a new report describing the climate reaching a crisis point as early as twenty forty folks i have no idea what the next few decades are going to look like None but I am increasingly convinced that Unitarian Universalism has to be a place of sanctuary in the midst of whatever is to come, both for us, the folks that are already here, and for all of those who need us to be a sanctuary. This sounds like a big task, and it is. It'll ask a lot of us, maybe ask us to change some things that we hold dear. But as Rohr says, the possibility of love is always right in front of us and always concrete, not a theory, a heroic ideal, or a distant goal. It is here. Oscar Romero was made a saint this month. Bishop Romero changed in the last years of his life. He started as an institutionalist. He didn't do everything, but he spoke out in order to make the church a haven in the midst of turmoil. Rather than stay unchanged in his own sanctuary, he changed to meet the challenge of his time. We aren't saints, and I don't want anybody in this congregation getting yourselves martyred but we can learn from his example. Uh, It is traditional when folks are named saints in the Catholic church to print up saint cards with their portrait on one side and quotes from them on the back. And the first card I've seen for the new St. Oscar mm, (laughs) (laughs) is a quote from one of his sermons We cannot do everything, and there is a sense of freedom in that. This enables us to do something, and to do it very well. It may be incomplete, but it is a beginning, a step along the way, an opportunity for God's grace to enter and to do the rest. May we do that. Today and in all the days to come.